Connecting Coaches Cognition. Coaching with Courtney and Christensen. As a busy coach, you spend all day refueling, revamping, and reflecting with educators. Now is the time to stop and recharge your batteries with some much-needed coaching for the coach. Welcome back to another episode of C3. I'm Courtney Groskin, and I'm here with... Violet Christensen. Violet, what's new in your world? Um, I don't know if it's new in my world, but something that I'm appreciating in my world right now is um, one of those many facets of coaching, which is just co-teaching when you really get to have some deep planning sessions and then be able to go in and co-teach. Right now, I'm working with um, a first grade teacher in co-teaching writing Mm -hmm. in one of her units. And um, this person just has such amazing classroom management despite having a really large class load for first grade this year and just seeing the differentiation, the implementation and the intentionality she's putting into the planning. It's amazing to be able to just jump in with her and be able to start reading what do we do with a tale like this and and being able to do some summarization and um, some nonfiction writing. And so it's just been powerful to be able to be in there and the energy. And um, after the end of one of our first co-teaching sessions, the first graders looked at us and said, we're on the backside of the paper. And um, it, it was like a, a course. They're like, no, I'm on the backside. I'm almost on the backside. I'm so close to the backside. So it was, it was this just um, moment of efficacy for the whole class and a breakthrough because I think a lot of classrooms writing is something that we're trying to um, get more practice and more stamina with um, just after our post our, our pandemic times that we're living through. And so to see that breakthrough in writing this week was just a super fun moment. And as I'm walking out, there was a kid just talking to this educator saying, I love writing now. And so when you have those moments and you see the teacher light up and the classroom light up, that just really fuels my fire um, to press forward in the coming weeks and days. So for me, that was really fun this week as a nugget to take forward. Nice. What's going on in your world, Courtney? What's going on in your classrooms and and education? I've been spending a lot of time in kindergarten and I just had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in a biliteracy kindergarten, which is the first year that I've had that opportunity um, to do that. And I've always, I took Spanish and high school and college and have been, you know, trying to really learn Spanish correctly um, because I want to be able to interact with our non-English speaking students and their families. But having the opportunity to watch these students who come in fluent in Spanish at five and now they're learning English and watching them transition and how quickly they're picking up the English language and watching them use it for their foundational skills and seeing how much growth they've had from August uh, to now, you know, in the fall here, it's just like blown my mind how quickly our kindergartners are able to adapt and learn. And, you know, in coaching the kindergarten teacher this morning, she was talking about like, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And then we sat and looked at her data from August where the students didn't come in with any letter sounds um, or letter identification. And now a hundred percent of her class made growth and they're very close to knowing all their letters and sounds at this point in the year. So I was like, just imagine by the end of the school year where the students are going to be. And I was like, you'll get there. So just, you know, really showing that teacher grace and reminding them that we have a lot of challenges, but I'm watching a teacher now do it, teach and the students learn in two languages. And it's just been a humbling experience for me. And we're so lucky to have the biliteracy teachers that we have in our school district. And I'm fortunate that I get to coach them and see their growth daily. 
it's so tremendous that you're so purposeful in celebrating with them and help, having them be able to see all of the progression that they've made over the course of this year. I'm sure that they just never want to let you go as a coach. Yeah, I w- wish I had taken video back in August because I feel like they students grow so fast that when you're with them every day, it's really hard to see. Whereas a coach, I can take the step back and be like, wait, do you remember when they couldn't do this? But now look at all the things they can do. So I'm in a really good position to be able to reinforce that feedback for them. Exactly. And I even saw recently somebody had tweeted out, being bilingual is a superpower. It truly is. I wish that I had that superpower and I'm jealous of both those educators and those students. Oh, totally. Today, we're so fortunate to have Karen Smith, the Elementary Language Arts Coordinator for St. Vrain, joining us today. Not only is Karen an expert in curriculum and language arts instruction, she is also a trained cognitive coach. Welcome, Karen. Karen, thank you so much for joining us on C3 today. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored to be here with you. We just know that you are such a guru and we are so excited to hear more. And we wanted to see if you could start and tell us a little bit about your background in education and about your role currently. Sure, I'd love to. So um, I started in St. Brain back in 2002, um, where I spent much of my teaching career in fifth grade. Um, And then after my time in fifth grade, I also um, served as an interventionist for grades three through five math and literacy. And I was a building based coach. And from there, I moved into the Office of Professional Development as an instructional coach. Um, I supported both novice and experienced teachers, primarily at the elementary level. Um, And really, I feel like my time in professional development in the Office of Professional Development was really transformational for me career wise, because it really afforded me the opportunity to grow as a coach and really take on an identity of a coach. Um, And I learned, you know, various coaching models um, during my time in professional development, um, many of which I still carry with me today and still integrate into all of my conversations today. So um, again, I spent some time in professional development and then I moved into my current role as the elementary language arts coordinator in St. Brain. Um, And here I have the opportunity and privilege to work with teachers across the district um, around a strong implementation of Um, evidence-based teaching practices, both in instructional practice and instructional programming. So that's, that's my story. And I love how, you know, your time in professional development with that coaching really paved the road into your position now, um, because I know you do lean heavily on that coaching and weave it so well into the work that you do. What model of coaching do you find best when coaching around literacy practices? That's a good question. That's a tough question. That's a good question. Um, You know, my default models for coaching are cognitive coaching and Jim Knight's impact cycle. Those two coaching models really resonate with me in terms of having conversations um, with teachers around practice, whether that's just your basic tier one Um, instructional practice or whether that's around evidence-based instructional practices related to literacy. And I have to say, um, 
the model I choose um, to onboard during a specific conversation really depends on the individual that I'm having a conversation with. And it also depends on the context um, in which I'm having that conversation. So if I'm coaching around um, improvement in a particular area of literacy instruction, um, really leveraging a framework to support the coaching process um, and to serve as a reference point to which we're working. So Jim Knight's model is particularly helpful in, in that particular context. Um, so, you know, taking a, a framework and a criteria, if we're talking literacy criteria, we would look at perhaps our minimum reading skills competencies, um, because those competencies identify specific evidence outcomes in the standards that um, are necessary for success in K through three. Um, those minimum reading skills competencies really frame the conversation in terms of let's identify what our students need to know, understand, and be able to do. And once we've identified that, then let's look at instructional practice. Let's look at refinement. Let's look at improvement. And so when we look at that particular approach, Jim Knight's impact cycle is really helpful because um, we identify what do I want to focus on in my teaching? What do I want to get better at as it relates to bringing my students towards success of the minimum reading skills competencies? Um, so that's your identify phase of that. And then, you know, we can move into Knight's learn phase of his particular coaching model where it's where we identify an instructional strategy that is high yield, high leverage in terms of elevating a particular competency as it relates to early literacy skills. So let's learn about practice. Let's dive into what is best practice? What should it look like? What could it look like? Um, so really having conversations with teachers around practice in that learn stage. And then leveraging um, observation protocols, be that you know video observation protocols, or modeling a lesson for teachers to really dive into the impact of the practice on student learning. Um, and then, you know, observing and noticing what improvements have we made uh, around our instruction and our delivery of instruction. So that's how Jim Knight's model really suppo supports a literacy coaching practice. But, you know, the cognitive coaching model um, is also really effective when you're having conversations with teachers around um, what's your goal in this lesson? What do you want to focus on? Um, what do you want students to know, understand, and be able to do? How will you know they are successful? How will you know you are successful? Um, what approaches might you take? So Knight's model has a has a higher degree of structure to it, whereas the cognitive coaching model is, you know, a conversation around practice and just being that mediator of thinking um, as teachers plan through a particular lesson. Um, you know, and and the third model that that is effective for coaching literacy is Diane Sweeney's student-centered coaching. Um, 
you know, if you're part of St. Brain, you know that we are embarking upon a literacy initiative right now um, that really sets out to identify early literacy skills um, that students need particular support with. And we use a really tight assessment process with that. And we know Diane Sweeney's model really leverages data um, to drive the coaching process. So Sweeney's model is perfect for our literacy initiative because we look at student data and we say, where are the needs that we want to grow? Where, what are the needs that we want to cultivate in students and the skills that we want to cultivate? Um, and let's look at the data, talk about instructional practice, um, engage in that teaching learning cycle, if you will, and then assess again and look at the data and reflect on what the data is telling us. So um, again, the use of Acadians reading within this literacy initiative is um, a catalyst for Diane Sweeney's student-centered coaching model. So I really think it's effective coaching um, when it comes to literacy is really a combination of which model best fits the context and how much structure do I need to put into um, the coaching process? I'm so grateful that you outlined all three of those models. And it's almost like you have a mixer and you're sliding one up and one down as needed as you're attuning to the situation and the content and the individuals in front of you. That's really powerful. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Violet, when when you talk about that mixing, like I, I feel like it's just navigating the different coaching models and really paying attention to the teachers that you are working with to say right now in this moment, what would be the most high leverage, high yield model to onboard um, in this conversation to really to be able to propel forward in a positive way, right? Yes, Violet, to to move practice. We're looking at impacting practice and we're looking at processes that help teachers reflect on their practice for impact. Absolutely. And you touched on this just a little bit, Karen, and we know that all components of literacy are important. But if we were talking about areas or components and in the state in which we are in education, where do you think teachers at the elementary level really need to focus in on and um, try to leverage the most in order to impact their practice and impact student teaching and learning? So this is a much more complex question um, and a much with a much more complex answer, I think, Violet. At the elementary level, we would naturally say we really have to hone in on foundational skills acquisition. We really need to ensure that our students have access to direct, explicit, and systematic instruction in foundational skills, phonics, phonological, and phonemic awareness. And while we could say that that really is the focus for early elementary, for primary classrooms, I think what's even more so and more important, Violet, is um, teacher awareness of the synthesis of all five components of, of reading and how each component supports the development of another um, with also an emphasis on oral language. Um, 
So while primary must focus on earlier literacy skills to a greater extent, teachers need to have that understanding um, of how these skills contribute to the development of more complex skills as we move into more complex tasks within those five components. So when you take Scarborough's Reading Rope, you know, one of the original versions of Scarborough's Reading Rope broke into two different branches. One was word recognition that emphasized phonological awareness, decoding, and sight recognition. And what we strive for is to build student skills in accessing these particular skills, sub-skills, with increasing automaticity. And then you have the other rung of Scarborough's rope, which is language comprehension. So that involves, you know, background knowledge, vocabulary, language structures, verbal reasoning. And what we want with that rung of the rope is for students to be accessing those skills strategically because skilled reading is the synthesis of both the word recognition rung as well as the language comprehension rung. So when we talk about coaching in literacy and our work at the elementary level, it's not only how what are the best practices within both of those rungs, but it is the awareness of the synthesis and the complexity of that synthesis that leads to skilled reading. Because if we're always just focusing on the discrete skills, we miss the opportunity to cultivate skilled reading by synthesizing all of the, the components of the reading rope. And it's knowing what the science of reading says and knowing how children learn to read um, that really informs our practice within each of those rungs of the rope. It's so important for teachers and educators to have an understanding of that science of reading piece so that they can truly encompass all those different elements of literacy instruction. Yeah, absolutely, Courtney. So we're still in the midst of a pandemic. How do you feel it's best to support students and teachers around literacy instruction during this time? I think a starting place for that is acknowledging that the work is hard right now. It is acknowledging that for a year and a half, we were teaching our youngest of readers how to read virtually. We're now teaching our youngest of readers how to read um, and decode and tap into phonological and phonemic awareness with masks on. Uh, articulation is difficult when we're wearing a mask. You know, just, just at the very least acknowledging that with teachers to say, this is hard. Um, but also using this as an opportunity to say, let's talk about practice now. This is an opportunity. This is a prime opportunity for us to talk about high yield instructional practice because we know we have hard work ahead of us. We know that our students um, need a lot more from us right now in terms of just addressing what we were not able to address when we didn't have the consistency of instruction um, and instructional spaces. So uh, that acknowledgement, I think, is, is first and foremost. Also, you know, when we're, when we're talking to teachers about how we um, can best support student learning within the pandemic is always circling back to 
the minimum reading skills competencies. That is always an anchor. And also knowing that that is the minimum, right? That is the minimum of what we want to develop with our students. So continually circling back to what our students need to know, understand, and be able to do um, in reading, writing, speaking, and listening. Um, instead of feeling like we have to go back, let's acknowledge that learning did take place over the last year and a half. Um, so instead of feeling like we always have to go back in order to go forward, let's remind ourselves that learning did happen. And if we operate on the assumption or the practice that we need to repeat last year, what's going to happen over time is we're going to widen the gap for our students um, if we keep deferring back to last year's scope and sequence. Um, let's look at this year's expectations, this year's scope and sequence, and really talk about instructional practice. What are the evidence-based and scientifically-based practices that will support student learning of grade-level expectations? And so when we talk about how do we support our students, it is really providing them um, with instruction that um, speaks to the three stages of proficiency. When it comes to early literacy skills acquisition, our students need multi-sensory instruction. They need to use manipulatives to explore new concepts and consolidate those new concepts. Students also need instruction in the knowledge stage where they have opportunities to practice the skills that they learned in the, at the multi-sensory stage. Practice with um, ongoing feedback, immediate corrective feedback, um, giving them an opportunity to try it out on their own with the teacher being the guide on the side. And then once we know that students are um, ready to move into that automaticity stage, really watching students as they are fluidly applying these skills um, just automatically and without, you know, conscious effort. It's, it's effortless. Um, but for our students, we need to pay attention to those three stages of proficiency. We cannot provide multi-sensory instruction and just assume that that's going to transfer to automaticity. We need to pay attention to that knowledge stage where they have opportunities to practice and pay attention to our students right now. I've had conversations with teachers, um, you know, when it comes to uh, our foundations, implementation of our foundations program, you know, teachers will say during foundations, um, they are able to spell the phonics pattern. They are able to spell words with that phonics pattern. Um, they are able to manipulate manipulate the letter tiles um, as we are engaging in our learning. Um, but gosh, you know, I'm really frustrated because when we go to writing, um, they're not spelling the words correctly in context. Or when we go to read our ReadyGen uh, anchor text, I've taught them this phonics skill, but they're still not recognizing words that carry that phonics skill. That's an indication to us as teachers that they're not at the automatic stage yet. They need opportunities, more opportunities in the knowledge stage where they can practice and get feedback from us. So that's really how we can support our students right now is just paying attention to student behaviors that tell us that 
they're either ready to move towards automaticity or they need more support from us in the knowledge stage to get there. And that really ties in so well. We had Paul Bloomberg on last month and his quote was, listen to the students. They'll lead you in the right direction. Like just watch those students' actions and what you speak to is so true. You know, they might be able to do something in isolation, but is it transferring when the cognitive load becomes a little higher in that writing piece? It's those form assessments and feedback loops. They're so powerful in order to know where we're driving and where we need to go next. Absolutely. Absolutely, Violet. Yep. Karen, we know you have so many stories in your back pocket. Can you go ahead and share a story that brings you joy around coaching literacy? Is there an experience that brings you back to your core in coaching that you could share with us today? An experience that brings me back to my core. Um, This might sound like a cliche, but, but every coaching conversation that I have, every opportunity that I have to step into the role of a coach brings me back to my core. That's my identity mm-hmm. when I'm having conversations with teachers. Being able to mediate a person's thinking by asking thought-provoking questions, pausing in the moment and paraphrasing is is illuminating. And you know, as a coach when you pay attention to beamers um in your conversation partner and you know like there it was. That was the shift that helped them get unstuck in their thinking. Those are the moments that bring me back to my core. Those are the moments where I celebrate that. Oh my gosh, I get to have these conversations. Just being a listener is, is a gift to people and just mediating thinking by living in the moment as the listener um, brings me back to my core in coaching. So I can't think of one particular experience that I have. I think it's a culmination of experiences that continue to remind me of my core identity um, as a coach. You know, the second part of your question around, um, is there a one particular time around coaching literacy that, you know, when I think about a time that resonated with me, I, I think back to my time that I Um, got to spend at Rocky Mountain Elementary in St. Vrain. Um, I I got to work with those teachers for um, the majority of the year around just shoring up and tightening up reading and writing instruction. And um, my dear fifth grade friends, the the teaching team, the fifth grade teaching team at Rocky Mountain, um, they really gave me a gift of letting me be part of their collaboration process. And so what I was able to bring to the table in this collaboration process, as we were talking about, you know, refinement of reading and writing instruction, I I brought in the impact teams model. I brought in learning by doing. And I, you know, also onboarded just what I know about coaching practice, Jim Knight, Diane Sweeney, cognitive coaching. And so that was like my tool belt, right? That's what I brought to the conversation. And I wasn't quite sure um, what, what, what the day was going to call for in terms of the structure or the approach that I took. We began digging into instruction, lesson design and delivery, and we used the impact team model to start. We really identified what do students need to know, understand, and be able to do. And that very 
question, that first question that you ask will always elicit some, some conversation and it will always elicit, you know, what do our students, what are they able to do now? Um, what are some of the challenges that we foresee? What are our hunches around where students might struggle? Um, and living in that space of asking that question of what do students need to know, understand, be able to do, we had really tough conversations. Um, we challenged one another's thinking in very productive ways. And that led to, it just opened doors for us to talk about, okay, now that we know, now that we have a common understanding of where we are headed, let's talk about practice. Let's talk about what types of instructional practices are going to best get our students there and how can we um, turn to our instructional resource to set that up for us, to walk us through those lessons. And it was hard work. It was uh, rolling up our sleeves. It was digging into those teacher's guides, if you will, digging into the standards. And it was bringing student work back to the table uh, on a weekly basis to say, what are we noticing? What are the celebrations? And that was hard because it was like, well, but we really need to identify some celebrations here um, to capitalize on, to keep pulling our students and stretching our students forward. Yes, there are needs. Yes, we can look at this um, student's sample and say, oh my gosh, I taught this lesson. I'm not sure that they held on to the lesson because I don't see application of it. But let's see what we do, what we do see application and evidence of. And so just those conversations around calibrating um, and celebrating those small successes were instrumental in our process. And then we got to December iReady. You know, all of our students take iReady in December. And our iReady results came back for this fifth grade group. And it was, it brought tears. And it still to this day is bringing a lump in my throat right now because I just, the growth that these students experienced was huge. It, it was it was beyond anything that I ever expected. And I was I walked into the um, our next impact team meeting and I was with like tears in my eyes and I was like, did you guys see your growth scores in iReady? And they were very humble because this team, that is how they are. They are just so humble. And they were like, we did. We're really excited, too. And it was like, can we just celebrate that? But I got to tell you, it was the fact that we had trust. We. Uh, had benevolence. We uh, were okay with being vulnerable. That allowed us to have the tough conversations that allowed us to lean in to the frameworks and say, okay, I'm going to trust this process and we're going to keep going. That is my, my, my biggest celebration um, that I continue to think back on today because by golly, they did it. They did it. And it was a, a leveraging coaching practices and processes that supported um, us in getting there. Paul Bloomberg is smiling so wide somewhere hearing your story and just giggling to himself. I'm sure that that is just resonating with him today. I mean, you have referenced so many of the wonderful people that we've been able to have on here and you're being able to show them the evidence of their tremendous work and of your tremendous work and of those educators work. That's just, it's just a beautiful story coming full circle, Karen. Thanks, Violet.
And it really just highlights the power of coaching and, you know, without that coaching piece, would that model be as successful? You know, I think not because you built that trust and that capacity and those educators to really think deeply about their practice and how to shift that. Yeah. And what I, Courtney, what I really appreciate about the role of a coach is that you have the ability as a coach to navigate the support functions of consultant, collaborator, or coach. Um, You have the opportunity to do that. And I feel like we need to pay attention to that collaboration stage because we might not have all of the answers. And when I went into Rocky Mountain, I didn't have all the answers. Um, But it's because I was, I let myself step into the role of collaborator. Um, That created trust and that created that um, good faith that, you know what, I'm in this with you. Um, And then where I needed to consult based on, you know, my role as the language arts coordinator, I took opportunities to do that, but I was very intentional about when and how I took those opportunities. And because of my experience with coaching, I gave myself the permission to just pull out some coaching moves um, and ask questions that really created a pathway for those tough conversations that we would have. Yeah, it's just such a beautiful example of the power in coaching and also leveraging that consulting piece as well when it's needed. Yeah. So we know you don't have a crystal ball, but what are your hunches around literacy instruction and how it will evolve in the next five years? We need to continue to pay attention to the science of reading. We need to pay attention to what the science says and what the research says around how children learn to read. Um, We can't expect results overnight in terms of shifts in practice. So what I mean by that is, you know, if we, if, if as a system, we are starting to pay attention to, well, gosh, we need to be more explicit and direct in our teaching of foundational skills. We need to give that time to settle in for for our teachers and for our students. So uh, continuing to just maintain the course with instructional practices um, that really align themselves with the science of reading. That's where I see things going. I also see opportunities for us to say, okay, now let's look at the big picture. Let's look at how students are leveraging these skills to access complex grade level text. One of our top 10 look fors when it comes to whole group reading instruction is is watching students as they engage in text. Are they engaging in grade level rigorous complex text with productive struggle? Productive struggle means that they have the tools they need to access that text. We just need to support them in helping them access the tools that they already possess. So that's where I see us being able to stretch, if you will, beyond just the discrete, explicit, systematic instruction of those foundational skills, stretching into, let's now talk about comprehension. Let's now talk about students doing the lifting 
of applying their skills to support comprehension. Um, that's one direction that I see literacy moving into. I also see opportunities for us to stretch what we know about the science of reading into how do we elevate student skill set in writing? How are we creating that common thread from decoding, encoding, um, supporting that for comprehension? And then how do we tap into that and support our students as writers who are writing for an audience of readers? So definitely some opportunities uh, for that work to happen. Being able to keep our focus on the focus while also having that stretch growth slowly over time while honoring the growth. I mean, that's we, we can't be switching and flipping and flopping. We need to stay the course and make sure that we can grow in this to every single level. Like you're saying, from teachers to students and all the way to families as well, that they're understanding a lot of these components of reading and how they can best support their students at home. Absolutely. Karen, you have been a wealth of knowledge. I feel like every listener has been like, oh, so many things to put into my schema to hold on to for later. And you're just a guru that really summarizes so many of the aspects we've already had on. So we appreciate your story in so many ways. And we're going to shift to the rapid fire questions for you. So our first one for you, Karen, is where can we learn a little bit more from and with you? And where could we follow you if we want to learn more? Um, you can always follow me on my Twitter handle. It's at SmithKaren51. Wonderful. And Karen, can you tell us if you were thinking of a tagline or a bumper sticker for coaching, what would it be? Tagline for coaching is stay in the moment and embrace the moment. That's so true. It's absolutely true. And I can tell that your, your synergy as a coach, your identity comes from being able to remain present in that moment. And you can see it come across your face as you speak about it. Oh. One more, Karen, tell us what is your secret coaching superpower or your go-to move? There is so much beauty in a really well-crafted question, in a pause, and a paraphrase. Always in my back pocket. Those foundational cognitive coaching skills coming to the forefront there. Yep. There is so much that can happen in those three steps. Well, we want to thank you for coming on and sharing your wealth of knowledge with, on literacy. I mean, I'm so fortunate we get to work with you all the time, but hearing it again just makes me excited to jump in and start coaching our teachers around this initiative. So thank you so much for your time. The research into the science of reading is essential to developing an understanding for strong literacy practice. How might you support your educators in shifting their reading practice? Thanks for listening and be sure to follow us on Twitter at C3 Coaches. C3, connecting, coaches, cognition. Whose thinking will you mediate today?